RNZ's Insight Programme. Kia ora, I'm Philippa Tolley, and this programme explores New Zealand's time on the UN Security Council. The United Nations was established in 1945 to prevent another conflict like the Second World War, but its weaknesses and limitations are being exposed as it grapples with horrific conflicts such as Syria. The eyes of the world were on the UN and the Security Council as world leaders convened in New York for the General Assembly as the Syrian crisis raged on. As President of the Council, New Zealand took centre stage as frantic diplomatic efforts were made to find a solution, but so far those efforts have been in vain. 7,774th meeting of the Security Council is called to order. The provisional agenda for this meeting is the situation in the Middle East. As its two-year term on the Security Council draws to a close, New Zealand chose Syria as the focus of the main meeting, saying it was the most devastating and complex crisis in recent times. The Council has 15 members, five of which are permanent. China, France, Russia, the United Kingdom and the United States, known as the P5. The UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon made the opening statement. The Syrian tragedy shames us all. The collective failure of the international community should haunt every member of this council. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, laid out his country's stance. Uh, the situation in Syria is particularly concerning. From the very start of the Syrian crisis, Russia has always been in favor of a, pure, a purely peaceful solution to the crisis while uh, preserving uh, the sovereignty and territorial integrity of this ancient country. The United States Secretary of State John Kerry questioned the actions of the Assad regime as the international community tried to find a solution. How can people go sit at a table with a regime that bombs hospitals and drops chlorine gas again and again and again and again and again and again and acts with impunity. I'm Jane Patterson and for this insight I travelled to New York for Leaders Week where the Syrian crisis dominated discussions on the floor and in the hallways of the UN. These are, the, these are some of the hardest, they're some of the most significant conflicts we have in the world but they're also some of the hardest because um, the Security Council tends to be divided. Jeffrey Feltman is the head of the UN's political affairs division. During a visit to New Zealand ahead of Leaders Week, he said part of the problem with Syria is the people themselves are divided. It wouldn't be this horrible tragedy, this, this calamity that's befallen them if they weren't seriously divided themselves. But more than that, you have the region divided. Look at, look at the role that Iran is playing versus the support that other countries are giving to the, and the region giving to the opposition. And then you look at the Security Council itself, which has come together on some important issues like Syria chemical weapons and humanitarian access, but has remained divided on what it means for a political transition. I think it's absolutely essential that we find a way to get the region and the international community united behind a political solution to what at heart behind the humanitarian tragedy and the military catastrophe is a political problem in Syria. If the P5 can't agree or can't reach agreement and of course have the use of a veto, how likely is it then a solution can be found without the cooperation? Well, it certainly would be a lot easier to get to a solution if the P5 were united and 
There have been some important developments that have derived from P5 unity and that have derived from, say, Washington and Moscow's coordination. I think that the creation of the, the International Serious Support Group was something that was helpful because it, it revived that Geneva communique from June of 2012 that talked about the need for political transition. So I think the international community has done some helpful things in terms of moving toward a solution, but a lot more needs to be done, and without P5 unity, it's that much harder. In the week leading up to the Security Council meeting, the US and Russia negotiated a week-long ceasefire, in part to allow humanitarian aid to be delivered to besieged communities. But as the days went on, the situation significantly deteriorated, with the US apologising for a fatal attack on Syrian soldiers and the bombing of UN humanitarian aid, which no one has taken responsibility for. Beforehand, the Prime Minister John Key told reporters those events made the Security Council meeting even more important. The negotiated ceasefire was, was very important. That it can be successful long term is critical, um, but what is clear is that it's not straightforward. And uh, whatever the rights and wrongs of the current situation are, you know, I don't have all of those facts, but what I do know is the world needs Syria to be in a better place, and the Syrian people most certainly need that. So Wednesday is an opportunity for the various representatives and leaders to talk about both what's been negotiated what's subsequently taken place and what needs to happen next. I don't think this is ever going to be a one-step process. The International Syria Support Group was formed last year as part of efforts to find a diplomatic solution and is co-chaired by Russia and the US. A meeting was hastily convened the day before the Security Council session to consider the two bombing attacks. Straight after that meeting, the Australian Foreign Affairs Minister Julie Bishop briefed reporters. There were no actual allegations made or accusations made at the meeting. Uh, both Russia and the United States stated that there are investigations underway into both incidents and that those investigations should take their that, course. That's a war crime. It sounds, sounds from what you were saying that uh, you said there'll be a plan developed for, for this meeting later in the week. Is it too optimistic to think that we could be on the edge of a breakthrough in relation to that? There was an agreement reached by Sergei Lavrov and John Kerry essentially on behalf of the International Serious Support Group um, around the 10th of September that included a ceasefire humanitarian relief and the uh, Syrian army, uh, Syrian air force to stop flying and the disconnection between the opposition and al-Nusra. They were the essential elements of the agreement from early September. And all options are back on the table, but I am hopeful that there will be an agreement. Another political leader at the UN whose country borders Syria was the Iraqi Prime Minister, Haider al-Abadi. He said a peaceful solution was critical to the future of his country. Don't forget, Daesh has moved from Syria to Iraq and occupied many cities in Iraq, killed many of our citizens and destroyed many of our cities. So it's important to settle the problem in Syria. The, the, the threat from Daesh in Syria will, will continue even after we liberate Mosul. We'll be controlling their borders, but we now want to have a viable regime next door. So we are dealing at the moment with different powers there. We are dealing with the Syrian government because they are the one who was in, in, uh, in Damascus. And we hope they can extend their control to the border between Syria and Iraq. This is a solution forward. 
Uh, I think it's up to the Syrian people to choose the government they want through election. But the common purpose must be to defeat all terrorist organizations existing in Syria. And there are many of them. The agenda is adopted. We shall warmly welcome the distinguished heads of state and government, the Secretary General, ministers, and other distinguished representatives present in the Security Council chamber. The meeting itself was characterised by heated exchanges between Russia and the US. The main point of contention was around breaches of the ceasefire. Russia's Sergei Lavrov went first and detailed what he said were hundreds of instances where the US-backed opposition and terrorist groups such as al-Nusra had mounted attacks on Syrian forces in the days the ceasefire was supposed to be in place. There were violations in Aleppo, in the Hams, Homo, Latakia, Dera provinces, and in the suburbs of Damascus. Violations include shelling, using uh, light weapons, uh, mortars, uh, um, multiple rocket launchers, uh, homemade multiple rocket launchers. Part of the ceasefire agreement were very specific arrangements for both sides to withdraw from Castello Road, the only remaining route into the besieged city of Aleppo for humanitarian supplies. Mr Lavrov told the council the Syrian military complied, but opposition forces did not. The government forces began withdrawing their forces, only to see that the opposition did not act similarly, reciprocally, but in fact started shelling government forces. And this happened more than once. And the opposition forces have still not withdrawn their units from the Castella Road as demanded in accordance with the 9 September agreements. In response, John Kerry told his Russian counterpart that listening to his version was like being propelled into a parallel universe. He said the US was prepared to make the ceasefire document public. But you don't need to read these documents to understand it's against international law to bomb hospitals. You don't need these documents to understand that you don't drop barrel bombs on children. These are flagrant violations of international law. He called on Russia to use its influence with Bashar al-Assad and on the international community not to allow the parties who want the conflict to continue to dictate the outcome. If we allow spoilers to choose the path for us, the path of escalation, if we decide not to do what it takes to make this work, this cessation of hostilities, then make no mistake, my friends, the next time we convene here, we're going to be facing a Middle East with even more refugees, with more dead, with more displaced, with more extremists, and more suffering on an even greater scale. While not a member of the council, Syria's permanent representative to the UN, Basha al-Jafari, was allowed to address the meeting. Speaking through a translator, he told the council actions by the US-led coalition have made the situation worse. This uh, American uh, military aggression on eastern Syria and the Turkish military aggression on northern Syria and Israeli military aggression on southern Syria means, without the shadow of a doubt, that uh, proxy war has become a real war and a real aggression. The U.S. apologised for what it called a terrible accident when it bombed Syrian forces during the ceasefire, an explanation clearly not accepted by Dr. Al-Jafari. 
this aggression that lasted for 50 minutes paved the way for ISIS terrorists to enter this military site of the Syrian army uh, that was targeted deliberately before the Syrian army was able to recapture it again. To add insult to injury, our soldiers and the wounded soldiers uh, underwent another airstrike by drones while they were evacuating their positions in the mountainous area of Tharda after it was targeted. And he accused the U.S. of false propaganda and of failing to cut off funding to terrorist groups operating in Syria. Even though they know very well the origin and destination of every dollar that reaches ISIS and al-Nusra Front, the only success they were able to achieve was to fabricate false accusations, made-up incidents, politicized reports, edited videos about the suffering of Syrians to demonize the Syrian government and its allies. Afterwards, the Prime Minister John Key talked to reporters about how he thought the meeting went. It's fairly obvious for everyone to see you know, the raw emotion on display today, some pretty hard-hitting interventions. But in the end, actually, all of the interventions came back to the same place, uh, that it might be messy and it might be clunky and it might even be a bit untidy, but the ceasefire is the only way of really getting a solution ultimately in Syria. We need a cessation of hostilities. We need the aid to continue to flow and to start reflowing back into Syria. And we actually need a political solution. So while it's somewhat two steps forward and one and a half steps back and a little bit of finger pointing, ultimately everybody came back to the same view. There isn't another way forward. And I think the point that was really made by uh, a number of the speakers was that, look, this is about uh, the lives of a huge number of people. And if the Security Council and the major uh, participants in this dispute actually can't find a resolution, then there's blood on the hands of everybody. The Security Council, uh, the Assad government, uh, those that are perpetrators of, of trying to violate the um, ceasefire. Um, but it's the single biggest issue that, that we face, and um, ultimately uh, we do have to find a way through that. While you can say, OK, there was a bit of venting and a bit of um, frustration from, from various interventions, you know, what other place can they continue to have those discussions? Everyone can see that ceasefire is struggling, but on the other side of the coin, we need the ceasefire to work, and you just have to accept that every step along the way here, there's a need to hit the reset button, and today was a bit of a chance to hit the reset button. But what is the role of the Security Council? Labor's David Shearer, who worked for the UN for many years, explains. The way I try and explain the, the United Nations in some respects. Is I, you see the Security Council as the cabinet in a government that makes the decisions on various policies and the General Assembly being the general parliament, if you like, where everybody's sitting there, opposition and the general countries. And if you look at it like that, then you realise that the power in any government lies in the cabinet. Obviously you need parliament, if you like, to pass things, but ultimately it's the cabinet that makes the real and makes the real decisions. And then you have, in the UN as well, you have the World Food Programme, the World Health Organisation, the UNICEF the Children's Organisation, which are sort of like government departments that operate according to resolutions that are passed by the Security Council but are ineffectively bureaucracies, if you like. So New Zealand sitting in the Cabinet has had a, a really big 
influence much, much more than sitting in the General Assembly. The Green Party's Global Affairs spokesperson Kennedy Graham has also had a long association with the United Nations. He says trying to get business done with 193 different countries without the Security Council would be unworkable. Can you imagine the Wellington City Council of 193 people working out what to have for coffee and, and donuts? It's not the right way to solve global problems. So then you have the Representative Security Council of 15 working on behalf of the 193, primary responsibility for peace and security, but on behalf of the General Assembly. And you can only really have 15, maybe some more, 20. It's still boardroom-style, cabinet-style decision-making, and it is binding under the Charter. They have been passing resolutions in the post-Cold War era that are binding on, on states. Under declaration that something is a threat to peace and security, they can pass a resolution saying states will do the following in terms of their own legislation. We've had it, Resolution 1373, with the money laundering, I think it was, for terrorists and after 9-11. 1540, uh, nuclear fissile material not getting into private hands. 2178, foreign terrorist fighters quite recently. They're all essentially saying states will pass legislation or adopt policy to do the following, to the point where the academics are, are talking about, you know, the potential of the way things are evolving as the Security Council is, quote, global legislator. And then that raises all sorts of bigger constitutional issues that here you have the executive branch of government adopting these kind of, not draconian, but, but very assertive and binding resolutions on, on all 193 states. New Zealand's permanent representative to the UN, Gerard Van Bohemen, says the Security Council, in theory, does have the power to direct member nations. It was set up after the Second World War as trying to find a mechanism to avoid uh, another world conflict of that sort. The Council was giving powers to take decisions that would be binding on all member states. Uh, it hasn't been as successful as, as the, as the ch Charter's founders wanted, partly because the veto, which precludes uh, decisions if there's a permanent member who's got an interest at stake, but also partly because the kinds of conflicts we're facing these days are rather different from the ones that uh, happened at, uh, you know, prior to the Second World War. There are a lot of think, conflicts that start off as an internal squabble and then bust, bust out over the borders. Uh, Iraq and Syria are close, obvious examples of that. So it's, you're, not, you're no longer trying to put a UN force between competing armies, which was the old style of peacekeeping, you're actually trying to contain a roiling social and uh, ethnic and sectarian conflict at times, which is much, much harder. Apart from getting around and making interventions that we've seen this week, what are the actual practical actions, and you've just referred to one, a peacekeeping force, but what can the Security Council actually do? Because that's obviously one of the criticisms, that there's a lot of talk, but not necessarily a lot of action. That's true, uh, and it is a lot of talk and it can be very frustrating, but we don't have a police force or an army that the UN can just impose its will. First off, because most member states don't want it to do that, they are worried about their own sovereignty, so there's a great deal of resistance to UN intervention uh, in situations. So I'll just go through the sort of powers that the Security Council has. It has the power to make binding decisions, and quite often uh, when there's a situation getting a bit tense, it can pass sanctions. And when it does that, those are bounding on all UN members and we're all required to implement them. And that's a, a non-use-of-force um, kind of methodology. But even sanctions are controversial, and so there's a resistance to passing them. 
Then at the other end of the spectrum is the, um, it can authorise the use of force under Chapter 7. Now these days uh, the UN, I think the last time it did it uh, in that kind of way, in the most obvious kind of situation was um, the first Iraq invasion. There it authorised member nations to take action to uh, basically get Kuwait back from Iraq. These days, since actually since the Libya intervention, we would also authorise states to put in place a no-fly zone to protect the Libyan people, but uh, in some people's view, what happened was that it was used to achieve re regime change. There's a lot of resistance, uh, and you can't get agreement to, to take those sorts of measures. So what the UN often ha is, is forced to do is to apply a sort of series of bandages. We put in uh, a peacekeeping force, as we have in uh, South Sudan, trying to contain the situation. But they can't actually ever do more than constrain the parties and encourage them to come together, but they can't force them to come together. Is that a problem for the Security Council in terms of actually backing up directives that it makes? Yeah, it is a problem. So in, in North Korea's case, you have a very blatant example where the Security Council has adopted a series of decisions. North Korea shall not test nuclear weapons. North Korea shall not test ballistic uh, rockets, missiles or, or satellites, or whatever they call them, rockets. Um, and it flagrantly breaches those requirements. So it's breaching its obligations under the Charter when it does that. So the UN has imposed sanctions and in, in, a, in a way to try and sort of force some ch behaviour change to North Korea, and it's happily flouting those. And we're trying to find a way to get some kind of traction, but it's very, very difficult. And everyone says, well, we've got, there's got to be another way if this isn't, this isn't working, but no one's come up with a, a better way yet. Now, take 2254, um, which is, relates to um, Syria. That was a kind of apex of agreement where it looked like the Russia and the United States and the other <coughs> members of the council had come together to find a way forward. Uh, and the problem with that was the Syrian regime, supported by the Russians, immediately uh, went off and intensified the battle. So we never got to the point where you, where you wanted the negotiation to go underway because people said we're not going to negotiate when we're being bombed and starved. So you can undermine a UN resolution like that. Uh, so, then the blame game, as you heard uh, the other day, can get very vicious because there are so many participants in that war. So yes, you can get very frustrated and you can blame the council, but really you need to sheet the responsibility home to the member states because the United Nations is, the, is basically the collective of, of individual states, and if states don't want to play the game, then we can't do very much sometimes. One area of reform New Zealand has consistently raised is the power of the veto by the five permanent members of the Security Council. Kennedy Graham says the veto should not be used in circumstances of mass atrocities or genocide. They're certainly being asked to give up particular power in a particular circumscribed area, which isn't everything. There's a strong moral political argument that if genocide and war crimes, crimes against humanity are at stake, they should not have that power is a relic. It's a throwback to a bygone age. So it's a relic of a power. It's, it's almost corpse-like. They shouldn't have that. It's one thing to, for them to retain the veto on certain things. Even that's a bit of a relic since 1945, but not on these issues. A former New Zealand Prime Minister, Helen Clark, holds the number three position in the UN as the head of its development programme and is currently in the race to replace Ban Ki-moon as Secretary-General. She says veto reform is definitely worth pursuing. I understand New Zealand has made improving the working methods of the Council quite a feature of its term on the Security Council. So for sure there's things that could change for the better.
Do you think there is any glimpse of reform, or do you think that the veto holders are going to hold on to that veto and use it as they will? Well, once there is a veto power given, as there was 71 years ago, it's you know, really very, very difficult for that to, to change. So most of the discussion around what reform could be have been more about how could you expand permanent membership or semi-permanent membership, uh, would it be with or without the veto? Uh, now, that debate really hasn't come to a head in the last decade. When Kofi Annan was Secretary-General around the time of the 60th anniversary of the UN, and I was Prime Minister, we were debating in our Cabinet Committee then uh, what kind of configuration we, we might want to support. But uh, at some point, you know, the Member States will elevate the debate again, and if one were privileged to be Secretary-General, you, you would you know, hope to be able to support the Member States, look at the options, see what's possible. But Geoffrey Feltman from the Political Affairs Division says it's not for him to comment on UN reform. What I can say is that New Zealand has used its time on the Security Council to force those of us in the Secretariat to think a lot more creatively about how to use the tools that we have. You know, there's a lot of set pieces in the Security Council where headquarters will send out to the perm reps the message on whatever the issue is being discussed, South Sudan, Syria, whatever it is. I very rarely, if ever, saw the New Zealand delegation using a set piece from headquarters. What I saw was the New Zealand delegation paying close attention to what we were saying in our briefings and then quizzing us on it. Have you thought about this? What should you, what should you do based on what you said? Um, and so in a way... New Zealand was reforming the engagement on the Security Council by how New Zealand used its own membership. The two big issues New Zealand identified as its priorities for its term on the Council were progress on the Middle East peace process and its long-held view there should be significant reform of the way the UN operates. But it has always acknowledged the power for change primarily lies with the permanent five members. The Foreign Minister Murray McCulley says there have been glimmers of progress, with France's call for the voluntary surrender of the veto in certain circumstances, including genocide. The UK has openly endorsed that position now. Uh, we're trying to chisel away at the other three. But the point I keep making to them, and I do make this to the P5 members directly, that if they don't embrace change, uh, ch change will engulf them. There is a level of frustration building up around the way in which the permanent members manipulate the place. We're, sadly, we're seeing that happen over the appointment of the new Secretary-General here at the moment. And uh, I think New Zealand has correctly felt constrained to be a constructive member of the Council while we're on there, but I've been very clear that uh, we're going to campaign very assertively for change armed with the experience we've got. And I think uh, we do now have much clearer insights and also have a much stronger motivation to bring about that change, and we'll be out there calling for it. New Zealand fought hard for its two-year term on the Security Council, and in diplomatic terms, the stars aligned when its turn to take the chair coincided with the most high-profile week in the UN calendar. But the hard work was done in the weeks and months leading up to that event, and efforts to both boost New Zealand's international profile and sphere of influence, and to act as an agent for change. New Zealand has achieved the former, also helped by Helen Clark's bid for the top UN job. 
The general view is that New Zealand has been a constructive but independent member of the Council and willing to push uncomfortable issues, Syria being a good example. New Zealand continued with the Syrian crisis as the focus of the main meeting, despite some resistance within the broader council, taking the view it would have been negligent not to have done so. And it says whatever happens now, all parties are on record as supporting a political solution and the resumption of humanitarian aid, even when they disagree on so much else. I'm Jane Patterson and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. Jane Patterson wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by me, Philippa Tolley, with technical production by William Saunders. And if you don't want to miss out on Insight, subscribe on iTunes.